0: And welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Barry Brothers and Rudd with me, Barbara Drew. This year, 2023, marks our 325th anniversary at Berry Brothers and Rudd. To mark the occasion, we have a very special episode exploring the family reserve, and we are recording this from inside the cellar itself. Today, we're sitting down with eighth generation family member and creative director, Geordie Willis, and director to the chair's office, Adam Holden as we discuss this unique wine collection. Geordie, Adam, welcome.
1: Hello. Good morning.
0: Geordie, this is your first time on the podcast.
1: It is. I haven't been asked before.
0: How has that happened?
1: I think I've been away.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about your role and how long you've been at the company?
1: Yeah, well, I've been in the company for a long time, about 20 five years now, spending time all over the world, including Hong Kong and, uh, and America as well. And I suppose a lot of what I do is tied into this building in a way. So I look after the hospitality business, the shop here at number three, St. James's Street, and a lot of the property side and uh, the building itself, including the space that we're in now
0: and tell us a little bit about the space that we're in it is it is a cellar we're all sat here with quite thick socks on and our hands are probably going to get a little bit chilly as the recording goes on Um, but tell us about the space
1: so it's, yeah, it's I wish I'd read your email properly, which said wrap up warm when you come down here, because it is a cold, <laughs> cold space. And we'll come back and talk about that in due course. We are in the family reserve, which is probably the oldest part of the cellar here in St. James's. To some extent, it is older than the building itself. It would have been here right back in the beginning in uh, 1698. If you go not far from this space, about 100 yards away, you actually get to a Tudor well, which gives a bit of an indication. And Simon Berry used to say, not correctly, I don't think, that um, there was a nail here where Henry VIII used to hang up his tennis racket because, of course, the building above was originally Henry VIII's tennis court. But this is where we keep the family reserve, which is a collection of extraordinary wines, uh, which stretch back 100 years or so.
2: You see, this this a really beautiful space because unlike a lot of the cellars which have been turned over for, entertaining and our sort of banqueting spaces and so on, which have had to sort of be brought up to a modern standard. This is an area where you can really get a sense of the age of the buildings above. And the, what the cellar that we're in now actually historically would have been three separate cellars serving three separate houses above us. So as to when it was all sort of linked together, I've got no idea. I don't know if you know, Geordie,
1: but... It would have been, well, like this whole building, the answer is complicated. Mm. Um, But you're absolutely right. Above us directly is the townhouse where some of our uh, customers will have come and eaten before. Um, And then we stretch under the parlour as well. And then uh, under the... The reception at number three, and they were all connected, around uh, about a hundred years ago.
2: Okay, so quite recent, really. And my understanding, and again, this could be one of these apocrycal things, but it was William Pickering, who was son-in-law of the original founder, the widow Bourne. Yeah. Who took the lease out on the corner of what is now Pall Mall and Saint James's Street, and he got permission to build and also renovate some houses that were already here. So I guess these cellars were already here. That would have been around 1724, 26, something like that. And so he probably renovated the houses above, but the cellars the were probably left much as much as they were.
0: So a really, really historic location, though, which is. As you say, sort of quite quite beautiful and still you know, very authentic. And we are surrounded by dusty bottles, many um, truly dating back to the 1800s. So Adam, can you tell us a little bit about the history of collection? Who had the bright idea of starting to buy wines and lay them down? I
2: don't know that anyone had the bright idea. I think it probably happened by accident. I think the oldest bottle that we have I suppose which we would con- still consider to be drinkable would be an eighteen thirty four Tokai,
0: and we're going to be opening that later on. And yeah, absolutely. It, that right? Yeah, Geordie
2: has signed that off. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna pop the cork. And- not
1: sign that off. <laughs> Agreed, <to laughs> anything.
2: But so I mean, I don't think the person who sort of put that away in the cellar thought in nearly two hundred years people are still going to be looking at this on on the shelf. I think it probably developed very organically, but inevitably, I think what you end up finding is that. You get to, I don't know, maybe 1950 or thereabouts and you realise you've got all these incredibly historic wines and think, well, we should put them together in a single collection and um, and preserve them for future generations. So now, you know, we do have what's almost like a catalogue sort of you know, a showcase of these great wines from the 19th century, which they may well be opened at some point. It's not like we only want to look at them. But on the other hand, you're kind of weighing whether it's better to be able to keep looking at it or open it and be disappointed by it effectively.
0: Now, that is a very, very interesting comment. So, Geordie, in your opinion, is it better to have an old (laughs) bottle of wine sat there in the cellar and the potential that it could be fantastic when you open it? Or is it preferable to open it to find out and then to have the empty bottle to look after?
1: It's a very good question. and I suspect it's a slightly leading question. I think that I remember my grandfather saying to me once that there's a reason that God put 12 bottles in a case. The joy of having multiple bottles is that you can open them over a period of time and and work out when they're uh, at their absolute best. When you get to the last bottle, it's a bit tougher. Mm. It's a bit harder to open it. Um, For example, adam you referred to the 1864 Tokay. there were 1863 Tokays. i remember one of those being opened at a lunch the reason i remember it being opened is because the very hard-nosed new york lawyer who was there who i remember burst into tears because he realized that it was um made the same year as the gettysburg address so there are there are bottles that that should be opened um, I'm a firm believer that the best bottle is an open bottle, and if you've opened it with the wrong people, you've probably wasted it anyway. Yeah. But at the same time, there are bottles here that are certainly of more historical interest than perhaps, perhaps on a scale of 1 to 10 delicious.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Although they can be really surprising actually and I can remember having 1868 and 1869 Lafitte from bottles that were not in great condition actually you know very very low levels yeah, which were spectacular and actually had more vigour than the equivalent wines from the sort of 1950s vintages and you do sometimes wonder why they've got more vigour than more modern wines
1: were you around when we opened the 1903 King's Ale I missed that one so we had <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting this was this was a, a beer without like going off the vinius track this was a beer that was uh, commissioned for the king's coronation in 1903
2: so Barry Bros and Co were the agent for Bass
1: for Bass exactly and yeah. that's exactly wine and we had a, a small selection or collection of these bottles left over and we opened one Barbara you were probably there for that weren't you Did, were you there for that dinner if you don't remember it then it was possibly, either a
0: very good dinner or it wasn't it was happy.
1: either a very good dinner or you out there. But it was a bottle that was opened for interest. And it was just I mean, you would send it back in a pub. It wasn't (laughs) it wasn't delicious, delicious, but it was beer. And it was reminiscent of something that was extraordinary. And at, at that point, probably 115 years old was fascinating. So so yes, we should be opening things. It's brilliant when we're opening with people who find them as fascinating and as interesting as we do but i'm sure there will be some very very old bottles here that will not never be opened. but there are certain things that have perhaps they passed there
2: remain for display purposes only historical exactly. interest historical is probably how interest, i put them yeah. yeah
0: and have there been any bottles that you've opened or enjoyed and thought actually this this was probably opened a little bit too soon any bottles that have really surprised you
2: i wouldn't say that about the 1868 lafitte <laughs> I can't recall an occasion like, I mean, definitely there is a sense to, you know, you open something and think, you know, it's got a longer life ahead of it, but the important thing is to enjoy it really. And just because a wine has still some evolution to do doesn't mean you can't enjoy it when it's younger.
1: But I think what you can say on the back of that, there are wines that undeniably we have opened thinking that they'll be at their peak. Yeah, We have been surprised to find out that there is time to go. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one thing, and we've heard this from producers as well, where we've opened bottles that belong to particular producers who know them quite well, and they have been really quite taken aback by the fact that these wines still have a lot of time um, to go. And they'd be drinking beautifully, but they would certainly be far from peak. And again, that's the fun of it. You know, we have this wonderful product that evolves and changes. And we take a note of it and mention that, you know, this might be enjoyed in the next 10 years or on the next two years, which is great feedback to be able to take to the...
2: Yeah, absolutely. So whenever the wines are used from the cellar, we always get feedback from the people that have enjoyed them and then we will make a note to say okay well we're being told that this is something that we need to think about drinking up so we'll try and focus on that for events in the short term equally we do get feedback that you know this was really young and you know we need to sit on this for a little bit longer so we'll make a note of that too
0: so part of part of your role, Adam, is to manage this vast collection. How do you go about doing that? It's such a wealth of wines and such a broad range of vintages.
2: Well, I have help in the form of none other than Tom Cave. So, and it is you know it's quite a big job. And actually, just choosing the wines that we're going to be using. There's a lot of demand placed on the cellar. So actually, just managing the outgoing and making sure that wines are being used for the right occasions. But yeah, Tom and I now we're planning you know it's the same principle if you were working on the royal cellar or government hospitality cellar we're thinking about what people are going to want to be drinking in 20 or 30 years and I think it's evident from the collection that we have that 20 or 30 years ago that wasn't the approach of the time because it's a it's the collection that we're drawing on at the moment is very focused it's it reflected really what was considered fine wine then I suppose and that's expanded a great deal but at the moment we're drawing down on wines from the 80s and maybe you know in some instances the 70s or further back and it is generally Bordeaux and Burgundy that's pretty much the bedrock of the collection and when we're building the collection now obviously we're thinking about the enormous wealth of fine wines that have emerged during that period so we're laying down more italian we're laying down more rhone we're laying down more spanish and then new world wines are becoming more of a feature as well so we definitely have icons you know we've got grange going back to the early 80s oh, lovely. we've got yarra yering is another one that pops up quite early on
0: they're really quite iconic australian wines as yeah. well as these more classic,
2: Absolutely wines. but they were definitely in the minority.
1: So that that was something that um, really was helped by the arrival of uh, one of our masters of wine no longer working in the business but Alan Griffiths who people in the wine world will remember or know well. Alan was charged with looking at the family reserve back in the 90s and really started to look at how we would broaden the appeal of what was in there. So we started to see Australian wines coming in probably a little bit later with those Granges and those Yarry Yarrings, also a little bit more Italian Mm. as well. But before, we were perhaps not quite as strategic as we might have been in terms of when it was going to be used. So we were buying extraordinary wines. But one of the challenges that we have now, and it sounds in some respects like a nice challenge to have, is that we have some very, very good fine fine wine and we have a slight gap for when we want to have something that's a little bit more approachable on a tuesday lunchtime rather than necessarily a friday evening
2: yeah so there is a little bit of if you're going to have something from the family reserve it's either going to be first growth claret or grand Cru burgundy but yeah having that sort of easygoing lunch wine is a little bit more of a challenge
1: which which will be one of the fun challenges going forward is how do we how do we populate this space with wines that we're going to want to be drinking in 20 30 years time And the reserve should always be a reflection of the business at a time as well. So there'll be times where we're getting particularly interested in a certain region. And one would hope that in 30 years time, we can look back and reflect on whether that was the right region to be getting excited about. I mean, our experience has shown us that probably that has been the case where we look back 20, 30 years now. We were on the money.
2: And I think the idea really is that there becomes a story to it. There's a sort of narrative to it. Why did we select these wines at the time? And you can see that in the cellar, as you wander around, you know there are producers that we don't work with anymore, or producers that perhaps don't even exist anymore. That were a, a real focal point for us at the time, and they chart that story of the producers that we've worked with over time. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: That's a very, a very interesting point about having a, ultimately having a balanced collection. Grand Cru Burgundies are wonderful, and they may take twenty or thirty years. To really be approachable but you also need wines which are premier crew village level and I think that's true for anyone building a wine collection whether it's going to go back hundreds of years and be part of this fantastic company or whether it's um, your own personal wine collection I think that's important to bear in mind. So we've, we've spoken a bit about how the collection sort of changing. Adam, you've got the benefit of um, Tom Cave, who's one of our longest serving employees and he has a huge depth of wisdom really about how wines evolve and change.
2: Yeah, absolutely. What,
0: What wines do we have in the collection that you think you would no longer adding what styles are you seeing that we just don't add to the collection well I don't
2: know that we would rule out adding anything to it particularly but one thing that is quite potentially over invested in I suppose is port at the moment so people just don't drink as much port as they used to and in my opinion they should and certainly here we feel like we really wave the flag for it and feel that if you're going to have vintage port anywhere it's going to be lunch or dinner at Berry Brothers and Rudd but we have an enormous amount of port and so we probably don't you know necessarily invest in that in the same way that we used to and if you go back very historically it's quite clear to see how much more popular german white wines were than french white wines certainly pre the second world war if not pre the first world war And we probably don't lay down um, as much of those sorts of wines as we used to. Again, you know, it would be quite a good thing, actually, for us to consider trying to reinvigorate that a little bit and putting people back into the mindset of the great wines of of
1: Germany. It's it's interesting because we always have to be mindful of the customer on this as well. And I think that for right or for wrong, if you come to number three St. James's Street for lunch, you have a certain expectation of what you might be drinking. So, you know, we do still see port on the menu. We, we do serve a lot of claret upstairs in the dining room, for example. So there's that lovely juxtaposition between what we want to be in there, but also allowing uh, the mm-hmm. customer to have a wonderful dinner. I agree with you on the German wines. I mean, we've still got, going back to your question, Barbara, on what what one bottle. There's a lovely bottle of 1921 uh, Liebframmisch uh, uh, that was in the Cages for any you many years, 21 being an extraordinary German vintage. Will I be brave enough to open that bottle? Probably not, but I would love to try it. And that was very much of a period where Hugh Rudd, Lizzie Archer's grandfather was one of the world's great experts in German wine. So we had a very strong collection of, of German wines. And we know actually, if you look back, as you say, to the first uh, two decades of the 20th century, we have wines uh, from Germany which are more expensive than any Bordeaux or Burgundy. Mm, absolutely. So I, I think we should be stocking up again on, on fantastic reason. Maybe yeah. some close antoon I'm gonna put my Hand yeah. up for uh, uh, putting a few bottles of that yeah, in. there. definitely be. That's
2: that. not German, Johnny. I, I know it is. I'm going. But, I'm, yeah.
1: going <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm in a sort if of we're anything, trance. If we're we're I'm going down that direction. But there's
2: quite so upstairs in number three in the shop, the old shop. We have a copy of a list from I think it's from 1915, a wine list from 1915. And of course, getting a hold of German wines in 1915 was was quite challenging. And there was a persuasive. It's just a couple of paragraphs, but basically introducing producing the white wines of France and implying that you needn't worry they're not as bad as everyone thinks they are they're actually quite a good replacement for german white wines so that goes some way to show the shift that's that's really occurred in in the appreciation of german wines and indeed the wines of alsace which you know has been part of germany historically so i Thanks, think Adam. you 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 know <laughs> you were not far wrong
0: how do you see this evolving in the next 20 30 years i mean buying wines that are going to be drunk by future generations is quite a difficult tasks. So what is it that you're looking for?
2: Well the the world's top wines are really well established. So and we will continue to invest in those because as Geordie says, when people come here, this is what they expect to drink. But I suppose one thing that is changing in the sort of outlook of our business is is really thinking much more about what individual producers are doing so the family reserve is really about thinking about what future generations are going to be enjoying so we would like to be you know we'd like to be putting wines from producers who are also thinking about what it's going to take to preserve them for future generations. So that is really thinking about sustainability and farming in a more sustainable way. So I think, you know, there are a couple that we would probably call out at the moment that we would think we would need to be putting them in because they form part of the, the narrative for future generations. So Chateau Monrose would probably be one we would call out because they're doing incredible things around sustainability, all the obvious things like solar and so on. But they're one of the first producers to start capturing the CO2 from the actual fermentation um, and then repurposing it, turning it into bicarbonate of soda. So they're actually capturing CO2 from fermentation, which is really revolutionary technology. And then people like Cheval Blanc who have introduced um, polyculture and agroforestry to encourage more biodiversity. So those sorts of producers, for me, I lead on sustainability for Berry Brothers and Rudd. So being able to... Hopefully in 20 or 30 years when all of these things have moved on so much to be able to say, you know, these were the people that really started the ball rolling and helped it gather momentum.
0: We've been talking about when these bottles might be opened and Geordie referenced our wonderful dining spaces and the dining room upstairs. Tell us a little bit about actually when wines are withdrawn from the family reserve? Is this something um, you know colleagues have for lunch every day? Is it something that is just for special family occasions? When would we serve these special wines?
1: Well, the answer is neither of the two. These wines are here to be drunk, first and foremost, and we draw on them a lot for when we have customers, friends of the business, producers suppliers in london we're able to benefit from uh, finding some wonderful old wines um, to to share with with our our friends in the industry and our and our customers now that may be as part of a uh, a, a lunch upstairs with uh, our fine wine customers uh, with our with our account manager team increasingly we're using this seller to support our charitable uh, aims as well so one of the joys of um of having an amazing dining room upstairs is that we can put it into into auction um, at charitable events. And uh, we do that occasionally. The the main thing is that we are drawing from it the entire time and it is very much a a theatre rather than a museum down here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that charitable element is a really important part of the family reserve because we're able to call on wines now, which were purchased 30 or 40 years ago, which are extraordinarily valuable now. But we have that as a resource at the price that was paid at the time. So it gives us an opportunity to really elevate something just by putting in, you know, wines that you see on the report that I have, what was paid for and roughly what the wines are worth today. And the increase in value of some of them is genuinely astonishing. And um, I think that's another thing about the, the wine collecting element of it is that even when things, obviously, you know the wines we're laying down today attract a much higher cost price than they did 30 or 40 years ago. So it's another testament, I think, to having a really long-term view on a, on a, a wine cellar and a wine collection. And
1: it's no, it's no different to the way a lot of our customers and um, we ourselves are looking at building collections so the idea that we're putting down wines that we will enjoy several decades from now and at a price that, uh, that we may not be able to afford at the, at the time yeah. is, not, is not new to the, to the trade and to the collecting philosophy. So in many respects, this cellar, whilst it has a romance to it um, that perhaps a little bit more dust um, in the corners, it really typifies a classic cellar plan uh, of, of putting down um, small amounts of funds over a long period of time and building up an established collection which you can draw on and, and enjoy in years to come?
0: I think what, what strikes me is that it's not just about us or about you know the family enjoying these wines in years to come, but it's, it is about the future generations. And actually, currently, we're tasting wines which were laid down by people who are no longer in the business. And the wines which Adam you're sourcing today, um, you you may no longer be in the business when these are opened.
2: No, probably not. I mean, I'm planning on being here for a while longer. I'm afraid, but uh, <laughs> yeah, certainly. I think I've I've got another. Twenty-five or so years in me, but yeah, are you we're thinking are you a bit longer on, term Are you than buying that. on that basis? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. What will I want to be drinking in twenty-five years' time? What do they say? Caring I mean,
0: for your retirement. What do dinner.
2: I want in my retirement dinner exactly?
1: I mean, I, I'm going <laughs> to butcher the the quote, but what do they say? A, a wise man plants a tree that he will never sit under the shade of. Yeah, exactly right. Um, yeah. So when your retirement dinner... Well, it depends how well you behave over the next... And <laughs> it may be good ordinary clarity. We'll be around the same time. It's in your interests as well, Joyce. I know.
0: We have not yet touched on spirits, but they also form an important part of this collection. Is that right?
2: They do. We have a spirits archive, which is effectively a, a collection of everything that we bottle as an independent bottler, a couple of bottles of that will get set aside. And that is an enormous collection. What we tend to keep in the family reserve are more historical interests, so particularly old berries bottled, Berry Brothers and Rudd bottled, cognacs, early shippings of that kind of demonstrate relationships that we formed with people like Hein, for instance. So we have some 1948, uh, 1948 Heine in the collection, which we've actually opened recently. I I don't think I got to taste it, but I th- were you at that lunch? Or? No, I heard yeah. again.
1: It was one of the ones that slipped through the net, but it was um, it was the it was a 1948, was it? 1948, yeah. um, and I well the only reason I recall it because when I was out um, uh, in France with the team there, um, they were ecstatic to have been able to taste it here. So a lot of these. Spirits, as you say, are, are really reinforcing long relationships. We did. We bought a lot of spirits in the nineteen twenties. I think that um, Hugh Rudd and Francis Berry bought quite a batch because we had cognacs going back to I think eighteen eleven year year of the comet 1811 there were 260 days where a comet was was um, uh, seen and and that was i think for a long time the the oldest stock that we that we had down here yeah the spirit side we love being able to serve extraordinary spirits upstairs we probably do it less than than we would have done previously i mean there mm-hmm. weren't many lunches that went by without cognac or a, a dram of something to to finish with but i think maybe we should be bringing bringing that back a little bit more.
2: Potentially the absence of cigars now has affected the desire to get stuck into the spirit at the end of lunch.
1: You know, we're we're, not serving nearly as much turtle soup anymore either, (laughs) funnily enough.
0: Um, I want to come back to this idea of storage. With so many magnificent bottles, it's really important that they're kept in perfect conditions. And many of our wines, most of our wines are kept in beautiful warehouses outside London. Tell us a little bit about the the specifics of this space. What have we had to do to make sure that the wines age in as perfect conditions
2: as they can. It's, it's very cold in here so as this goes on there's going to be more and more trembling detectable in, in our voices <laughs> I've got no doubt about that but so this is definitely the sort of the glamorous romantic side of cellaring and this is what people would anticipate probably a very classic Victorian cellar to look like. We are only one floor below ground level so actually we have had to um, seal the space, insulate it plug the holes, I suppose, that are inevitable in Georgian buildings, and then climate control it to keep it at um, at a constant 12 degrees.
1: I think we we realise that we we have, as you mentioned, Barbara, these extraordinary cellars in Hampshire where they have half degree variance over the course of a year. And consequently, we've been tracking for a number of years what temperature looks like here and variation to temperature. And we just had the feeling that whilst it was absolutely fine at the moment that it might not be in five years time or 10 years time. This building has gaps, there are floorboards above us. Um, We were just mindful that given that we were keeping some of our most extraordinary wines down here, that to have a cellar that wasn't in the long term commensurate with the expectations of customers and what they saw with their wines being stored in Hampshire, that it didn't just sit comfortably. So we took a lot of the ceiling out. Uh, We replaced it with insulation. Uh, We did lots of really cool thermal imaging of the space, um, which was a little bit like, if anyone's seen the film Predator, uh, the way Predator sees. Um, So yellow patches um, um, pointing us in the right direction of of any sort of heat. um, Heat, heat, influx or outflux, and we really sort of took it all apart and put it back together again.
2: But very much with the idea that someone who knew this cellar previously would walk in and and wonder what had been done. Yeah. So it was you know to preserve it, not to not to sort of smarten it up,
1: really. and preserve it and present it because we've put these beautiful glass of critter style doors at either end, which means that anyone coming down to the Pickering cellar, uh, which is where we host our wine school events, will be able to look in and see um, some of these wonderful wines and equally people coming down to events in our Napoleon cellar from the other end, will will be able to put their fingers up against the glass and gaze in at, uh, at what might have been... Longingly. Longingly. Yeah.
0: I think it's important to note, I mean, we have mentioned it's a touch chilly. Um, it is about 12 and a half degrees. So when we yeah. talk about long-term storage for wines, we're not talking about a fridge. Um, you don't want the wines to be too cold. Um, you want them to be cool, and that constancy of temperature is really important. You know, temperature fluctuations—the yeah. sort that you get when you store your wine in a garage—and yeah. um, yeah. those are the ones that really um, kill your wine quite quickly. Yeah, um,
2: absolutely. And the humidity is important as well for the condition of the corks. You know, particularly we're laying things down here potentially for. 30 40 years or longer it's really important to keep a good level of humidity so the corks stay in good condition and you're quite right a fridge is not not appropriate at all unless it's a specific wine fridge but one of the things fridges do is they dry the air out very specifically dry the air out so it's really not a good place to keep wine for the long term
0: well as we inch towards the end of this fascinating discussion one more question for for each of you if you could go and open one bottle from the collection for lunch today, what would it be, Adam? First of all,
2: it's a really, really tough question actually, because it's always tempting just to think about the historic wines. And Geordie, you know, he alluded earlier to. The historic connection that you feel when you open one of these wines and and even if the wine doesn't sing just knowing what was going on in history what was going on in Europe at the time makes it makes it quite extraordinary but if you want a banker <laughs> you probably don't want to be looking in the 19th century but uh, I believe we have some 1945 Lafitte here which I think would potentially capture both of those essences, having the historic significance and also, I think, being an extraordinary wine. So that would probably be the one I would
1: I would go to. That sounds like a request for your... <laughs> we'll mark it down. I'm, I think I think my, my problem is when you come down here, it's a bit like being a kid in a candy store because I've been looking over Adam's shoulder and I can see bottles of Aubry and I can see wonderful bottles of Beaucastel, Mouton Rothschild some lovely old bottles of Cheval. And one of the joys of coming down here is that you, your mind may be set on something and then you come and have a look and realize that you're gonna go in a completely different direction. Um, if I think about bottles that have been truly exceptional, I'm gonna go slightly less grand. I, I think that the 1990 Monrose in Magnum is always, or has always been singing for me.
0: Fairly grand.
1: No, but when okay, but grand, <laughs> but not but not 1945 mouton, Barbara. I'm I'm thinking of a realistic leaving leaving lunch, but yeah, very very grand, very special, um, but also um, something that I've been lucky enough to try probably two or three times now over the last um, ten years, and I think that's exceptional. And there is a very very nice pile uh, of um, 2001 Ikem. yes, uh, yeah. which um, I passed on the way in, yeah. and I think one of the great pleasures. Hopefully, like Adam, I might be here for another few decades and it'll be a real treat trying that um over that period of time knowing that we have enough stock to last us probably a hundred years if we if we pace ourselves yeah we
2: we do need to pace ourselves absolutely and then you know there's all there's as a wine enthusiast there's just there's all these little treasures down here which are such a kind of pleasure just and they're not the grandest wines but they're not even necessarily things that you would Think I'm going to lay that down for a long time, but they're here. And when you open them, they're just such great fun as a wine enthusiast yes. to get to try them. I'm thinking sort of 19, we've got some 1999 Frogs Leap Rutherford yep. Cabernet down here yep. and some 1992 Wirra Wirra um, Shiraz. And, you know, they are not the grand wines that we're going to bring out for really smart lunches and dinners but
1: goodness that will be fascinating yeah
2: exactly when you get to taste them it's such a pleasure
1: and anything anything with a berries label on it as well um, I think is exciting there are wines which whether they be 55 Batailles or there's a 85 Cornasse which I was lucky enough to try about a year ago which was drinking beautifully so things that we have bottled here are always fantastic but yeah. Luckily there is a, enough to keep us going but with some clever purchasing we should be in good stead.
0: And if there's one wine that you could add to the collection, which would it be and open it up in 30 years?
2: There's nothing stopping us. I put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> If we if we want to put it if we want to put it in, we definitely will. I don't know how to answer that question to a be honest. A
0: particular style that you'd like to see more of.
2: Do you know what I would like to see more of is these sort of And you know, to Geordie's point earlier that we want to be able to serve the wines that people expect, but I think we do want to be able to sort of surprise people, surprise and delight even. And I would really like us to be putting down a little bit more uh, of the wines from Bierzo, from Descendients to J. Plathios. I just think they're absolutely magnificent wines. And they also capture the essence of something that's modern, but also these incredibly old vineyards, and the way that the Spanish wine industry has evolved in the last twenty years. So again, you know, it sort of plays into that storytelling. It's a really significant part of the evolution of mm-hmm. of the industry.
1: I'd love to see some um, some more wines from the Loire. I think that it's an area of increasing interest for us as uh, as individuals, but I think that it'd be fascinating to be drinking some of those top wines in 30 years time. And then also wines from the US. I think that the US wine market is, is evolving so quickly and rather like those Beautiful Frogsleep Rutherford's. Mm. It'd be fantastic to be drinking some of those extraordinary wines um, in 20, yeah. twenty, thirty years time, and seeing how well they've fared. And I suspect they'll be drinking beautifully.
2: Definitely. And what we've been talking about recently, as well, is making sure that we're capturing the emerging icons from the English sparkling wine industry. You know, there's more and more sort of single vineyard or single site expressions coming through, and people really starting to try and punch quite high with what they're trying to achieve. And I think to be able to represent that and call on those in 20 years, when again, that industry will have developed in a way that none of us could possibly predict sitting here today.
0: That's really exciting. I think those who will be dining with us in the future have a lot to look forward to. All that remains for me to say is Geordie, Adam, Thank you for sharing your stories today in such wonderful surroundings and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to browse the producers mentioned in today's podcast, visit bbr.com slash podcast. Or if you're interested in starting your own fine wine collection with Berry Brothers and Rudd, all the information you need can be found on bbr.com slash collecting. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We hope to welcome you back soon. But until then, thank you again for listening to this episode of Drinking Well.